You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. If you've got your Bibles there, please go ahead and open them up to James chapter 1, verse 12. James chapter 1, verse 12, as we jump back into our series in the book of James. And here's something that I've learned about people over the years. Either you are a planner or you're not, okay? Either you're a planner or you're not. Either you're the kind of person that can kind of see the situation and you can formulate a plan and you can make the plan happen or that's just not your gift set at all. In fact, if you are a planner here today, can you just go ahead and raise your hand? Where are our planners at? Okay, okay. And if that's not your gift set, hands up, hands up for our non-planners. Okay, so maybe more non-planners than planners, right? Well, let me encourage you. You may actually be a better planner than you think. For example, if I was to say to you, what's your fire plan? What would you say? Like, what's your fire plan? Like, if somehow you were to catch on fire, like, do you have like a three-word plan memorized, ready to go? What is it? Right. Pretty good planning. You're ready. How about this? What's your emergency plan? Like if you, if you, if suddenly you were in an emergency, do you already have like a phone number? It's already memorized. It's ready to go. Maybe we shouldn't say it out loud in case our phones pick it up. All right. But you know, you know, you're ready for that, right? You have a plan and those kind of plans are really important to have. Something could happen, right? Could happen. But let me ask you this. What about the things in life that we know for sure are going to happen? The difficult things in life that we know for sure are going to happen, it would make sense to have a plan for those things, right? Like what about trials and testing? Do you have a plan for trials and testing? Because the Bible says that, that trials and testing, it's going to happen all the time. First Peter 4, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Peter says this is going to happen all the time. Don't be surprised by it. And that's why we have heard this before. But the Christian life, I mean, you're either in a trial or you're coming out of a trial or you're about to go into a trial. I mean, it's just true. Either we're in a trial or we're coming out of a trial or we're going to Go back into a trial. So what is your plan? What's your plan for trials and testing? Or how about this? How about temptation? Do you have a plan for temptation? Because in Luke 17, Jesus said, temptations to sin are sure to come. So when Jesus says something is sure to come, we know it is sure to come. So do we have a plan for temptation? God is saying to us, even right now, from his word, that both testing and temptation are coming for sure. They're coming. So do we have a plan? What's our plan? Well, if we don't have a plan, then by the end of today, Lord willing, we will. Because that's what, in, in our text today, in James chapter 1, this is what James is telling about. So we'll begin here with our first point up on the screen. We'll begin with the truth about testing. 
Here's the truth about testing. If I keep trusting God in my trials, he will reward me forever. If I keep trusting God in my trials, he will reward me forever. Have a look now. James chapter 1, verse 12. James says this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. So notice first that James says that the man who remains steadfast under trial is blessed. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And that word blessed there literally means happy. Happy is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Happy is the man who keeps going under the weight of the difficulty. Happy is the person who doesn't give up under the weight of that suffering. Happy is the person who keeps trusting the Lord and keeps moving forward when they're in a trial. Happy is that person, James says. So why is that? Why is the person who remains steadfast under trial happy? Where there are two reasons given to us in James chapter 1. The first one goes back to verse 2. So have a look back at James chapter 1 verse 2. James says this. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So here's what James is saying. He's saying that God sends trials into our lives to test our faith. God sends trials into our lives to expose our faith so, so we can see where our faith is at, but then also to mature our faith and grow our faith and produce in us steadfastness, this ability to continue to move forward under the weight of trials as we trust in God. And the person who can do that is blessed. That person is blessed. So we can think of it this way. The Christian life is a path of testing where we move from trial to trial to trial to trial, learning how to exercise faith. The Christian life is a path of testing where we move from trial to trial to trial, learning how to exercise faith. This is what it kind of looks like up on the screen. So, so there we are, and we are, we are moving up this trail, this, this path of testing, and we kind of move from ledge to ledge to ledge. It's kind of like climbing up a mountain. And as we move from ledge to ledge to ledge, like, it's scary. As we get higher and higher, and we keep hitting trial after trial after trial, we're out there on that ledge or on the cliff face, and it's scary, and in those places, we really get to see what we truly believe about God. Do I really trust him? Do I trust him out on this ledge? Here are some of the questions that we have. Is he with me? Is he really with me right now? Will he be enough for me in this? 
Is he really going to provide all I need? Is he really in control? These are really, really important questions to face and to get answers to. And as our faith is tested, and then we go to God's word to find answers, here's what we learn on the screen. Is he, is he really with me? Up on the screen, is he really with me? God says, yes, I promise you my presence. Isaiah 41.10, God says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Is God going to be with me? God says, I promise my presence. Next, up on the screen, will he be enough for me? God says, yes, I promise you my power. I promise you my power. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul is in a trial and he's, and he's praying, God, you take away this trial. And God says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Out on that ledge, he will be enough for us because he promises his power. Next, will he provide for me in this scary place? Is he going to provide for me? And God says, yes, I promise my provision. Psalm 23, verse 1, perhaps the most memorized and least believed verse in the Bible. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Think about it. Even a terrible shepherd can still take half decent care of sheep, right? The Lord is my shepherd, the perfect one who, who cares for me perfectly. He's my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. He promises us his presence, his power, his provision. How about this up on the screen? Is he really in control of all of this? And God promises he is working out his plan. We just read about that in James 1, 2. He is testing our faith to produce in us steadfastness. The promise is his presence, his power, his provision, his plan so as we exercise faith in God's promises, as we keep going up the path of testing from trial to trial to trial, here's what happens up on the screen. As we move up that path of testing from trial to trial to trial, learning to trust in God's promise for his presence and his power and his provision and his plan, here's what happens. As we move from trial to trial to trial to trial, God is producing in us increased steadfastness. As we trust him, he is, he's producing in us increased steadfastness, his ability to continue to move forward through trial after trial after trial after trial as we learn to trust in him. This is how we grow. And the person who is growing in steadfastness is the person who is truly blessed because that's the person who's lacking nothing. They're lacking nothing, and here's why. Because they're learning that with God's help, they can make it through any trial. They're learning, we're learning, that with God's help, we can make it through any trial. What a blessing that is. What a blessing that is. 
But now also notice in verse 12 that James gives us another huge reason why the steadfast person is blessed. Look again at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So the crown of life there is a reference to a kind of wreath that an athlete would receive when they won a competitive sporting event in the ancient world. So someone won like a race or like a boxing match, they would receive this wreath that would be a symbol that that would indicate to everyone there, this person is deserving of honor because of what they just accomplished. That's the idea here. James is saying that the person whose faith has been tested with trials, the person who is growing in steadfastness, that person will be awarded by God the crown of life. So we can, we can think about it like this up on the screen. Again, there we are. We're moving up this path of testing from trial to trial to trial to trial, learning to trust in God for his presence and his power and his provision and his plan. As we do that, God is producing steadfastness in us and now he wants to tell us to help motivate us to continue to move up the trail that the crown of life is at the finish line. He wants us to keep gazing up at the finish line as we go up this path of testing knowing that the crown of life is at the finish line. And so what exactly is this crown of life? Well, it's this. The crown of life is everything that is included in eternal life, including this, God's reward. God's reward. And so what's God's reward? Well, the Apostle Paul Love to talk about God's reward. Here's a few things that Paul said. Here's Romans chapter 8 up on the screen. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul's saying all of the sufferings that take place up on that, on that path of, of testing all the way from trial to trial, to trial. You take all of that, you put it on this side of the scale, and then on this side of the scale, you put the glory that will be revealed to us. Paul's like, you weigh those things out, and here's what you do. You throw the scale away because it's a ridiculous comparison. It's like trying to compare a grain of sand to the universe. Yes, the sand is a thing. It matters. But compared to the universe, it's nothing. That's what he's saying, that the glory is so awesome, so great, that it cannot even be compared to all of the suffering that we will go through on that path of testing. It's also why he said this in 2 Corinthians 4 up on the screen. He said, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we are being afflicted as we go up this path of testing. Trial to trial to trial, there's afflictions. But Paul's like, in, in light of... Eternity, these afflictions are light. They're light because they are momentary. 
The glory, on the other hand, is eternal. And it is of infinite weight. So, so it's beyond all comparison. And so what exactly is this weight of glory that is beyond all comparison? Well, for sure it involves this. Matthew 17 up on the screen. Jesus has gone up to the top of the mountain with his disciples. Here's what happened. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And this is one of those texts where we got to try to put ourselves there. So I don't know if you've ever tried to stare at the sun. I know when I was a kid, I tried to stare at the sun all the time. Maybe that's why I have glasses right now, okay? But I would try to stare at the sun. You can only stare at the sun for so long. But imagine what it would be like to see a person whose face is shining like the sun. Like, just imagine that. What's that like? When we step into glory, we step into eternity, we will see Jesus with his face shining like the sun. And, 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 and we won't have to look away. In fact, as we keep staring, as we keep gazing, we will experience perfect joy, perfect pleasure. That is the weight of glory. But it also involves this, Matthew 25 up on the screen. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So imagine there you are in eternity. And you see Jesus with his face shining like the sun. And you are gazing at him. And there you are with all the angels and the saints. And Jesus says, you, my child, come here. And you're like, he's like, no, you. Yeah, you, come here. And you... You make your way through the angels and the saints. You make your way all the way up to Jesus. You're, you're gazing at him. And he puts his hand on you and he says, well done. Well done. I was with you as you went up that path of testing. I was with you on every ledge of those trials. I saw how you trusted in me. Well done. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. Well done. You were faithful over little. Now, I am going to set you over much as a co-heir of all things. Come and enter into the joy of your master. That's the weight of glory. That's the weight of glory. And that is the very definition of blessed. Amen? So what is this path, again, to the crown of life? Well, it's the path of testing. And that's why we need a plan. We need a plan for testing. So here's our plan again up on the screen. As we move up this path of testing from trial to trial to trial, as God is, is producing in us increased steadfastness, as we, as we are moving toward the crown of life, here's our plan for testing. I would commend this to you. It's five Ps, okay? And again, we've memorized stop, drop, and roll, right? We can memorize these five Ps. I mean, testing is a reality for us, so we can, we can memorize this. Here's our plan. We're going to trust in God for his presence, that he's going to be with us out on that ledge. 
You're trusting God for his power. His power is going to be enough. We'll trust in God for his provision. We'll trust in God that this is his plan. There is no plan B. There's only plan A. And we're going to trust in God for his prize, the crown of life. So here's the truth about testing. If I keep trusting God in my trials, if I keep trusting him, he will reward me forever. Amen? So we can stop right here, sermon over, 20 minutes, we're done. But that's not the only plan that we need because we also need a plan for this, for temptation. We're going to see that in a few minutes. We need a plan for temptation. So that leads us to our second and final point, which is this up on the screen. The truth about temptation, here it is. I can't blame God. My desires are the problem. I can't blame God. My desires are the problem. Have a look now at verse 13. Verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted. So James is moving from talking about being tested, and now he's talking about being tempted. And here's what he's saying. He's saying that as our faith is being tested along that path of testing, at the very same time, we are going to be tempted. So we're going to experience these two things at the same time. In the midst of being tested, trial to trial to trial to trial, we will also be tempted. So no wonder life feels so hard. No wonder then. We're experiencing these two things at the same time. So what exactly does it mean to be tempted? Well, here's what it means. It means to be lured or enticed to sin. That's what it means to be tempted. It means to be lured or enticed to sin. So we know that testing comes from God, right? We know that. What about temptation? Does temptation also come from God? Well, have a look back at verse 13. James continues. He says, Let no one say when he's tempted, don't say this, I'm being tempted by God. It's like, don't say that. Don't do that. That's a bad plan. That's pretty clear. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So testing is from God, but temptation never comes from God. James wants to be very clear about this. Temptation never comes from God. Again, verse 13 Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Don't say that. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So James is telling us here why temptation will never, ever come from God. First notice, he says that God cannot be tempted with evil. So he wants us to understand this. God cannot be tempted with evil, meaning God cannot be lured or enticed into doing evil. And why is that? Here's why. Uh, John, uh, 1 John 1, 5 up on the screen says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He's light. In him there's no darkness at all. So because there's no darkness in God, God cannot be tempted with darkness. 
Because there's no evil in God, God cannot be tempted with evil. We can think of it like this. Magnets are attracted to one another. Magnets are attracted to each other. In the same way that magnets are attracted to each other, darkness is attracted to darkness. And evil is attracted to evil. The only reason anyone is attracted to the evil outside of them is because there is first evil inside of them. When the evil on the inside comes into contact with evil on the outside, there's an attraction. Evil is attracted to evil. And listen, God has never experienced that. He will never experience that. He can't experience that. It's impossible because there's no evil inside of him. So here's what James wants us to understand. That because God cannot be tempted with evil, he will therefore never tempt anyone else with evil. So if you and I are tempted to do evil, don't blame God. Don't blame God. He has nothing to do with that. Don't blame him. God cannot be tempted with evil and therefore he tempts no one with evil. So if temptation never comes from God, then where does it come from? Well, James tells us exactly where it comes from. Have a look now at verse 14. Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So James here is giving us a theology of temptation. And notice where temptation comes from. Where does it come from? Our own desires. Our own desires, which is another way of saying this, that temptation comes from indwelling sin. Indwelling sin. And so what is indwelling sin? Well, Romans chapter 6 Paul says this up on the screen. He says, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So at one time, before you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you had this thing inside of you. We had this thing inside of you. I had this thing inside of me called sin. And it was the master. Sin said jump. We said every time. But then the Spirit of God moved upon you and, and regenerated you and you placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you repented and that, that, was, that power of sin was broken over your life. Sin is no longer your master. The power of sin has been broken, but sin is still present. And it is still seeking to rule over our bodies. It is still seeking to try to make us obey its desires, its passions. And so how does it try to do that? Well, verse 14 tells us. Again, verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And those two words there, lured and enticed, are very important words. That first word, lured. Lured. What do you think lured has to do with? It has to do with fishing. Fishing. It's a picture of fishing. So the idea here is that you've got a fish that's maybe under a log in the shadows. The fisherman comes along with a hook, puts a worm on the hook to cover the hook up, tosses the hook out in front of the fish, and the fish is lured out from the safety of the log. 
and lured out into the open and lured closer and closer to the worm until it finally bites down and then its mouth is pierced by the hook and it is pulled away. James is saying that indwelling sin is just like that. It's a fisherman. It takes a hook and on that hook it puts a desire. And then it casts that desire out in front of us and we see it. It enters into our mind. And if we focus on it, we will be lured closer and closer to it. If we keep entertaining that desire, if we keep thinking about it, then it's just a matter of time before we reach out and grab the hook and get pulled away into places that we never, ever thought we could ever end up. Notice there's also a second word there in verse 14 as well. But each person is tempted when he is lured and notice enticed by his own desire. And that word enticed is most likely a reference to Proverbs chapter 7 up on the screen. Say to wisdom, you are my sister and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. So there's a personification of sin taking place here. Here's what the forbidden woman does up on the screen. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. Here's the outcome. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. He does not know that it will cost him his life. So here's what we're learning right now. That each one of us has an enemy within us that is seeking to lure us and entice us and pull us away into places that we don't even know right now that we're capable of going. And how do we know this applies to all of us? Well, again, verse 14 says, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Each person means each person, as in each person here, as in all of us. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So let me ask you, is there a certain desire that you are being lured and enticed by right now in your life? Is there a certain desire that right now you are being lured and enticed by in your life? Is the Holy Spirit pointing to something in your life right now? Is there a certain desire that you are being lured and enticed by right now in your life? Because it's not a question of if indwelling sin is casting out evil desires in front of us. The question is, what are they? 
Well, ask yourself, is it any of these up on the screen? Sexual morality. Is the desire for pornography or to commit adultery? Is it materialism? Is it the desire for that new, that better, that different? I must have it. Is that the desire? Is it the intoxication of substances? Is the desire for drugs or for alcohol? I must have that feeling. Is it the intoxication of the praise of man? Is it, is it is the desire to be liked? I must be liked. I must be respected. I must be admired. I just want the glory that comes from man. Is that the desire? Is it the desire to be rich? To engage in self-indulgence? To have a life that is filled with luxury? Is that the desire? Is it power? Is it the desire for my way? Is it the desire to have authority? It's not like I wanna, it's not like I wanna power under people and help them, it's I wanna power over them and dominate them. Is that the desire? Is it leisure? The desire for entertainment and entertainment and entertainment and sloth. Is there a desire that you are being lured and enticed by in your life right now? Is the Holy Spirit showing you something right now? Because if so, here's the truth. That desire is what indwelling sin is seeking to use to destroy your integrity, to destroy your reputation, to destroy your testimony for Jesus Christ, and to destroy your life. That desire is what indwelling sin is seeking to use to destroy your integrity, to destroy your reputation, to destroy your testimony for Jesus Christ and to decimate your life. So in light of that, here's a very, very important question. Is there anything that we can do to make those desires less appealing? And the answer is, yes. Yes, there is. We can think of it like this. It is way easier to catch a fish that's hungry than to catch a fish that's full. Agreed? It's way easier to catch a fish that's hungry than to catch a fish that is full. In the same way, a Christian that is spiritually hungry is far more easily caught and pulled away by temptation than a Christian that is spiritually full. A Christian that is spiritually hungry is far more likely to be caught and pulled away by temptation than a Christian that is spiritually full. Paul put it this way in Romans 13 up on the screen. He said, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Fill up your life with the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fill up on him. And make no provision for the flesh. So here's the truth. If someone is genuinely seeking the Lord. And genuinely walking in relationship with the Lord. By spending time in his word and by spending time in prayer, and by spending time in, in fellowship with other believers, 
and if they have genuine accountability in their lives and they're filling their hearts up with the things of Jesus Christ, then the likelihood of that person grabbing hold of a desire and being dragged off into a terrible place, I mean, it's possible, it's possible, but it is not very likely. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen it, not once. But the person who is not genuinely seeking the Lord and not walking in close relationship with him, not spending time in his word, not spending time in prayer, not spending time in fellowship, no genuine accountability in their lives, not filling themselves up with the things of God, that person is at tremendous risk of experiencing verse 15. Have a look now at verse 15. James says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. So here's what James is saying. He's saying that if, if, if that sinful desire is cast out in front of us and we focus on it and we think about it and we entertain it, then here's what happens. The desire becomes pregnant. That's what he's saying. The desire becomes pregnant. As we entertain the desire, the desire starts to grow. It gets bigger. It gets bigger until eventually the desire gives birth. And what does sinful desire give birth to? Sinful behavior. Sinful desire gives birth to sinful behavior. In other words, if we entertain a sinful desire on the inside, it will eventually give birth to sinful behavior on the outside. If we entertain sinful desire on the inside, eventually it will give birth to sinful behavior on the outside. If we entertain the desire for sexual immorality, it will give birth to engaging in pornography or committing adultery or fornication. If we entertain the desire to be liked and respected and admired, it will give birth to compromise and doing whatever it takes to get the praise of man. If we entertain the desire for money or status or power, it will give birth to 60-hour work weeks, the neglect of family, and the neglect of the Lord. And then here's what happens. Look again at verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. In other words, if we entertain sinful desire, it becomes pregnant and gives birth to sinful behavior. And then, when sinful behavior grows up, when, 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 that, when that child of sinful behavior grows up, it has a child as well. And that child's name is death. The grandchild of sinful desire is death. So as we look at the sequence of events from desire to behavior to death, here's what we're learning about how to battle temptation. Up on the screen, here's our plan for battling temptation. First part of the plan, stay full. Stay full. Stay full of the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. Next part of the plan, look past the desire. 
Look past the desire. Don't stare at the desire. As we gaze at the desire, it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, and it gives birth to sinful behavior. Don't gaze at the desire. Kind of push the desire to the side. Look to the other side. What's on the other side of this desire? Sinful behavior, misery, shame, and death. Doesn't look so good now. Here's our plan for temptation. Stay full and look past the desire. Look past the desire to the open grave on the other side. So again, we're not just battling temptation. Let's try to put all this together. We think about testing and temptation up on the screen. So there we are. We are moving up the path of testing, moving from trial to trial to trial, learning how to trust in the Lord. The Lord is is building steadfastness in us. So here's our plan. We're trusting in him for his presence and his power and his provision and his plan and his prize. As we move from scary ledge to scary ledge to scary ledge, here's what we're trusting in. Here's our plan for testing. But at the same time, as we're moving up that path, we are also battling a war within us. We are battling temptation. So here's our plan for temptation. Look past it. How? Stay full, stay focused. Stay full of the things of the Lord. Stay focused on what's behind the desire. Look to the other side. This is our plan for temptation and for testing. So notice, there are two paths in our text today. There's one that leads to reward, and there's one that leads to death. There is one path of testing that goes up and up and up to the crown of life. Then there's another path that leads off of a cliff into a free fall of sin that ends with death. So ask yourself, which one of these best describes you. Are you on the trail of testing, growing in steadfastness, growing in trusting in the Lord? Yes, stumbling, yes, struggling, yes. But moving up the path of testing toward the reward. Is that you? Does that describe you? Or are you in a free fall of sin? Maybe you're here today and you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you've reached out and grabbed hold of that desire. It has pierced your hand and it has pulled you so far away from the Lord that you couldn't even imagine that you are where you are right now. If that's you here today, this is what the Lord is calling you to do. Return to him. Return to him. He loves you. Return to him and receive forgiveness. Bring all of this out into the light. You can even come up after the service and and pray and and we can maybe come around you as a church and, and do all we can to try to help you. But the Lord is calling you back to receive forgiveness, to experience his love, to be set free. But maybe you're here today and you've never placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6 up on the screen says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are here today and you know you are in a free fall of sin, know that the, the bottom of that is death. That's where that ends. It ends with eternal separation from God. It ends with the wrath of God. It ends with hell itself. The judgment for sin. 
But Jesus Christ came into the world and he died on the cross to make the forgiveness of sins a reality for you. If you would turn to him and embrace the gift of eternal life by placing your faith in him, he will pull you out of that abyss of the free fall of sin and he will place you on the rock. He will place you on the path of testing that leads to the crown of life. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the best news of all time. And this is what we celebrate now as we turn to the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes this concerning the Lord's Supper. He wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you are here today and you have not placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then as the elements come come down the aisle, I would invite you just to allow them to pass by you. This part of our service is for those who place their faith in Jesus. So just you can allow that to, to pass by you. And, and please take time to consider what you've heard today. Take time to, to consider the faith of those around you. But if you are here and you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and as the elements are passed to you, please take one. They separate into, into two. The bread symbolizing the body of Jesus Christ the juice symbolizing the blood of Jesus Christ. And after we've all been served, we will partake of the Lord's Supper together. So this is a time to, to bring our hearts before the Lord. This is a time to, to be sober-minded and to come before him and to ask him to examine us, to confess sin, and again to consider the greatest news of all time, the Lord Jesus Christ and his cross. So at this time, I'd like to invite the communion servers, if you would please come forward. And as they do that, let's pray. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you so much, so much for sending your son. We thank you so much that before time began, you chose us to be adopted into your family. When we were your enemies, you sent your son. Lord Jesus, when we were your enemies, you came for us. You came to suffer in our place. You, you came so that our sin would be transferred to you on that cross, so that your righteousness would be credited to, to us so that we could enter into the presence of God. And you commanded us to take time now to remember the gospel. So lead us, each one of us now, as we remember. In Jesus' name, amen.